We enter into our final section of Joshua this morning. We are returning to Joshua 22, which uh, enters into the final movement really in this uh, great book that we've studied for the last several months. Uh, You see there that division that we've been kind of covering for the last several months there, uh, opening four chapters, the entrance into the promised land, chapters uh, 5 to 12, that conquering and the taking of the land. And over the last several weeks, we've talked about what it looks like for them to inherit and to divide the land amongst themselves. And so as we enter into these uh, final chapters here, uh, we're going to be looking at what it looks like for these people to keep and to retain the land. And in many ways, the last three chapters of this book uh, serve almost like a post-credit scene in a movie, Uh, or perhaps if you're more into books, it's like an epilogue, because really the heart of the book is over at this point. Uh, Chapter 21 really draws things to a nice close. If you look back at verses 43 to 45, in particular, the last verse, 45, says, No, uh, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And in many ways, the bulk of the book uh, is over at this point. Uh, And yet, the question remains, now what? Now what for God's people And these final three chapters answer that question as a transition uh, and kind of an epilogue to the book. And we come here in chapter 22 to actually one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Joshua. And that's significant because it is one of the most overlooked or I would even say unknown chapters in the entire book. And now that the people have entered and conquered and divided the land, the question at the forefront of this final section is this, will they remain faithful to the Lord? A few weeks ago, we started to allude to uh, the answer to that question, but here we start to see some of those tensions at play as they wrestle with that question of their own faithfulness. Uh, So let's read it together. We're going to stand and and read this morning from chapter 22, and we're going to cover a big portion. Uh, It's a long chapter again, uh, over 30 verses in length, and uh, I want us to get a a good idea of what is happening here in this story. So we're going to pick up in verse 9 and read all the way down through verse 30. So read with me from Joshua 22, starting in verse 9. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent the the people of Reuben and uh, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, 
Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at pure from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from uh, following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon the entire congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. And then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offering and sacrifice and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. And when Phinehas the priest and chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with them, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. So read the word of the Lord this morning. You may be seated and let's pray now asking for God to bless our meditation on his word. Indeed, now, Lord, we do come to you asking for your kindness as we seek to unpack this passage, one that for many of us may be new and fresh. And Lord, I think it has so much to offer us as your people, seeking to understand what it looks like to be faithful. And so I pray now that you would humble our hearts to, to receive this, to 
uh, better know and appreciate, Lord, uh, what concerns you uh, and what should concern us as your people. Pray that you would make these words clear and that you would, again, till the soil of our heart now so that we can receive this, uh, not just for our own knowledge, but, Lord, that it would affect us to our core so that we might be changed in light of it. So that is a, a supernatural work that you accomplish by your spirit through your words. So we pray that you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I think it's interesting to notice people who live in a fallen world that our lives are often driven by concerns. Uh, if you were to turn on the news, the news is always trying to convince you of things that are concerning that should ultimately shape how you live, right? Think about the wars over in Ukraine and the Middle East, ways that those shape you and way you think. Think about the weather, right? Weather always uh, causing you to be concerned about what you need to wear or how you need to drive or what you need to prepare for. Or how about another presidential election, right? Something that's going to affect and shape the political climate of the nation for the next four years. For young people, you know, as the semester is drawing to a close, it can be anything from tests to assignments, right, that you need to have the highest concern for to prioritize your life around, or perhaps it's relationships or your status amongst your peers on social media. All these things trying to compete and tell you and convince you of matters that should be of greatest concern to you. And while I certainly don't want to be insensitive and don't want to disregard the importance of many of these things, I do recognize as Christians, our concern should be much bigger. And our concern should carry a greater weight of significance. To be sure, there is a place for good and godly concern in the Christian life, but that concern transcends any of the nature of the concerns of this world and this life. And I believe that's what stands at the center of today's passage in Joshua 22, where we're going to see this morning how God wants his people to be appropriately concerned about remaining faithful to him. How God wants his people to be concerned, appropriately so, about the things that are of most importance. For us as God's people, that is what it looks like to be faithful to him. Over the past three weeks, we have considered one key attribute of God. And that is his faithfulness and the ways that he stays faithful to his people. But now the focus of the book shifts, these last three chapters, to the Israelites. And the, the question at the forefront, or we could say the concern at the forefront is this. Are they going to reciprocate that faithfulness to God that he has shown to them? They have proven time and time again to be a, a stubborn and a stiff-necked people in the past. And so it's a reasonable question to ask. Understanding this question or this concern uh, will help us better grasp, grasp what is unfolding here in this chapter. Because at the heart of this chapter is a concern. And it is a concern that revolves around the pure worship of God. 
a worship that comes from a people who desire to remain faithful and committed to him. So let's explore this chapter by answering the following question. If God's people are to remain faithful, what must concern them? If God's people, and in this case the Israelites, if if they are going to remain faithful, then what should be of greatest concern to us? So let's look at that in four different ways here. Let's answer it in four different ways. Uh, Firstly, I think we see with the Israelites here in chapter 22, verses 1 through 9, uh, that these people must be concerned first and foremost about ongoing obedience. They must be concerned about ongoing obedience. If we were to identify the, the origin of this concern, this concern is Joshua's concern. And it's directed at those two and a half tribes that are going to be residing beyond the Jordan River to the east of the Promised Land. Uh, and so Joshua's words here in the, the opening verses of this chapter are directed to these people. They're getting ready to leave. They're getting ready to go into this land that has been provided for them. But before they leave, Joshua summons them and he gives them a departing exhortation and encouragement. And one that I think is worth noting because look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. He said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to do, uh, to keep the charge of the Lord your God. If you remember back in chapter 1, the concern was whether or not these people who had an inheritance to the east of the land were going to be faithful to help their brothers as they were going into the land to inherit uh, this, this promised land. And we saw that they were indeed faithful to do so. They, they went with them into war, into conquest of the land. They upheld their end of the bargain. This is Joshua saying, congratulations on a job well done. They've stayed true to their word. They followed Joshua and Moses. And so Joshua gives them his blessing in verse 4 that they can return, that their their part in this battle is now over. They can return to the land to the east. And in verse 5, he gives them one final encouragement. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to keep Uh, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. This charge that Joshua gives here is his way of saying, keep on keeping on. Keep running well. It reminds me of the concern that a lot of parents have if they drop their kid off for college maybe you have had that experience before but you know that you're not going to be by their side anymore you're not going to be there to always encourage them the way that you want to and so you know that as you're departing with them you're encouraging them to keep prioritizing the things that they need to prioritize most And so Joshua's charge here is similar actually to the one he himself received back in chapter 1 where he was told by God to keep his commands, to walk in his ways. If if he was to do these things, if he was to be reliant upon the Lord, he would then experience what it was to have true success. And so that's the exact same command and the exact same exhortation he's now giving to these tribes. Observe God's law, love the Lord, walk in his ways, cling to him, serve him. 
with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Such is the concern we should have for all of God's people who strive to be faithful, right? And in fact, this reminds me of what Paul writes in the New Testament, where he calls for Christians who are running well to excel still more. All of our points to ponder this morning are going to be uh, points that come directly from these New Testament principles that correspond. But we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul gives that exhortation to these people to keep going strong. In fact, 1 Thessalonians is one of the most positive letters that Paul writes in all the New Testament. This is a church that had turned from idols, had received the apostles, had received God's word, was loving one another well. He's encouraging them in those things. And just when you think what he's going to say is, great job, you've done it, there's nothing left to do, what does he say? In chapter 4, he says, we want you to do so more and more. In other words, I want you to excel still more at what you're currently doing. If you've ever gone to a, a track or a, co- a cross-country meet, this is what you experience with runners and the, the fans that line the different parts of the course, the, the exhortations that they give to the runners. Keep going. Keep it up. The end is in sight. Keep running hard. You're doing great. Right? Understanding that the race is not yet complete, but they need to keep going. They keep chugging along as much as possible. Likewise, we as followers of God are called to be spiritual cheerleaders for one another in the race of faith because we recognize the race is not yet finished. No matter how far you've come, there's always still room to grow. Even the best of us, the most mature of us, still have room to grow. We still have a race to complete. And so our concern each day should be how we can grow closer in our walk with the Lord than the previous day and how we can encourage others to do likewise. That's what it looks like for us to help one another to remain faithful to the Lord, understanding our part and our responsibility we have, not just for ourselves, but to one another. And as we've discussed, the concern to remain faithful in the past, we've talked about this, must be viewed through the lens of steadfast, day-by-day faithfulness to the Lord, day-by-day obedience in the small things to him. And so we see here this opening call for the people to keep going in their obedience. But I think we see a second concern in this chapter. And the second concern is this. It's the concern for emerging idolatry. For the potential of emerging idolatry. And the concern here is on the part of the western tribes, the the tribes that inherit the the bulk of the promised land, the, the, the true Canaan, land of Canaan that they have inherited. And this is where things take kind of an interesting turn in this story because after being dismissed in verse 9, those two and a half tribes for the east begin their journey home. But when they reach the Jordan River, they make a they make an interesting decision before they cross over. And we read in verse 10 that they build there an altar. And it's not any ordinary altar. It's an altar that says of imposing size. This thing was large. It was intimidating. And the reality is up to this point in the story, we have no context. We have no detail as to why, which leads us to wonder, as the Western tribes are, 
have these people already so quickly before they even get back home abandon their faithfulness to the Lord. Uh, word arrives to the western tribes and they are shocked at this and the nature of their concern is warranted. There's a couple different reasons for it potentially. Leviticus chapter 17 verses 8 through 9 talk about how the, the true uh, altar for worship, for sacrifice, for, uh, uh, for offerings to the Lord uh, was to be at the, the tent of meeting. They, they were unauthorized to do this and as such they were to be cut off from the land if that was the case. Deuteronomy 13 speaks even more strongly in verses 12 through 15 that you are to destroy those who lead others astray into false worship. If this is for any other reason than to be committed to the Lord, then they are to be put to death. That's pretty strong language. And that is the concern of the western tribes for these two and a half tribes and what do they do? They mobilize their troops to put down this rebellion. And by verse 12, so quickly in this story, by verse 12, we have a nation that is on the brink of civil war. And Israel is not playing around here either. In fact, Israel brings in the big guns for this fight. We notice here that the coalition is led by a guy by the name of Phineas. Phineas serves as a priest. He was the grandson of Aaron. But I don't know if they had nicknames in this culture, but if, if they had nicknames, then Phineas would be known as the Rebellion Crusher, right? Pretty sweet name. They were allowed to have tattoos. He would have had it tattooed on his arm. But no, he, he is an experienced man at putting down rebellions. In fact, the section here mentions the, the rebellion of the people at Peor, uh, an event that happened back in Numbers chapter 25. And Phineas was instrumental in putting that rebellion down. In fact, in that instance, you had a Israelite man who was uh, shacking up with a pagan woman. And Phineas says, uh-uh, not on my watch, grabs his javelin, and he spears both of them. You don't mess with Phineas, right? Okay, he's, he is serious about this. And he brings with them the chief leaders, one from each of the ten tribes that are to the west. And here they raise their concerns and give the terms of surrender to the eastern tribes lest they face war. <laughs> what has happened so quickly in this story? But notice the nature of their concern in verse 16. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel? The term, phrase, breach of faith is literally the idea of unfaithfulness. How have you so quickly become unfaithful to God? You see, Israel understands how this has all the makings of two other major rebellion events in their history. We already mentioned, uh, they, they draw out here the example of the rebellion at Peor back in Numbers 25. But the other event that he draws out at the end here is from a story that happened just in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 7 with Achan. You remember Achan? Right? His sin, his rebellion led to defeat. And uh, the death of several Israelites because of one man's sin. 
And so the concern that the Israelites have at this point is the domino effect that this could have upon the nation. Verse 18, they say, uh, if you too rebel against the Lord, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation. Right? God will be angry with them and all this could be the very end of them as the people of God already. I love that they even show a concern. They're, they're not even fully mad. Verse 19, they show a love and a concern for them saying, listen, if the land of your possession is unclean, if it's a stumbling block to you, then forsake it and come back over to us. We'll give you a portion. We'll give you an inheritance. Just don't be led astray by this. You see, the tribe saw the danger of sin and they were calling their brothers out of it. It's a powerful picture of how, uh, for us and how God's people should be concerned about emerging idolatry in the lives of one another. And the concern that they have here takes action. It's a reminder to us of what we see in 1 John 5, 21, where we are called to guard ourselves from idols. To guard ourselves from idols. In fact, it's interesting that 1 John 5.21, the very final verse of this letter by John, ends not with a, I love you, salutations, see you later. His final words to them, guard yourselves from idols. My little children, be on guard for idols. Be on guard from that which will lead your worship astray. Be on guard for that which you will desire more than God. Be on guard for that which you give your affections to or where you place your hope more than God. Sure, we may not, uh, idols may not be made with wood or stone by human hands, but it certainly is. An idol certainly is made by human hearts that are sinful. They can be people, places, things, relationships, job, money, you name it, success. All of these things can replace the affections that we should have first and foremost for God. And it's appropriate that God's people be on guard, not just for ourselves, but for one another. Because we understand that the nature of sin is that it's deceitful, isn't it? It's blinding, and that's what the author of Hebrews reminds us of. In Hebrews chapter 3, he warns us to be on guard for the deceitfulness of sin. Lest there be in any of us an unbelieving heart. And so he calls for God's people to be involved in the lives of others, to be on guard for those idols. Because again, sin makes us dumb. We don't see appropriately when we are in sin. People are not thinking right when they choose the wrong path. Proverbs 14, 12 reminds us there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to destruction. And when we're so engaged in that, when we're so immersed in that, we do not see rightly, which is why we need the community of believers around us to help us see such things. And so I exhort us, may we seek to be a community that prioritizes the spiritual well-being of others like the Israelites did at this time. But now, here's the kicker. This whole thing is kind of a misunderstanding, isn't it? It's a story that actually has a lot of confusion around it. 
Because there's another concern we need to understand, and it's the concern that the Eastern tribes had. And that concern was for preserving unity. Their real intention behind everything in this story had nothing to do with idolatry. It had everything to do with them preserving their status as God's people. And that response is shown at their, in, uh, in their intention in verse 22 where twice they say, the mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. You see, their true allegiance has not wavered. They are not breaking faith. They are just as committed to the Lord now as they have been before. See, God knows their heart, and now they want everyone else to see their true intention in this matter. And before doing so, they, they, they even prove themselves to be vulnerable in this story, and I love that. They even say in verses 22 to 23, Listen, if we have breached faith, if we truly have been unfaithful, if you judge us to be unfaithful in this matter, kill us now. Let God judge us, right? If we have truly done this wrong thing in the eyes of the Lord, then we do deserve this. But, however, they make it clear that this is not their intention. In fact, notice the location of the altar speaks to this. Back in Verse 11, they make it very clear that this altar was not erected on their side of the Jordan River, but actually on the side of the Western tribes. And the reason that's significant is because if it's on the West and you have this big river that's dividing them from it, they don't have easy access to it. It's not like they're going to be going to it every day to offer sacrifices and offerings and and their own expression of worship. So why then build it? What is its purpose? Look at verse 24 again. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? You see, these people were afraid that over the course of time, they would become disconnected from God's people. After all, let's just face it, the Jordan River, though it wasn't a super wide river, it's a long river. It creates this very long natural border between the tribes to the west and the tribes to the east. That poses a threat. It poses a threat of division. In the same way that we might think about railroad tracks in our society, right? Like, oh, those guys on the other side of the tracks, right? What business do we have with them? You see, what they were doing here, what was perceived as unfaithfulness was really actually a means to preserve and prevent unfaithfulness in the future, In other words, it served to the eastern tribes as another memorial stone in the book of Joshua. We've talked about these, right? These memorial stones that were created to remind people of something important, of a truth that they needed to hold on to, to cling tightly to. And this altar here served as a sign to them and to their children, their offspring and generations to come, that they are indeed a part of God's people, 
That's the reason it was built on the western side and the reason that it was built so large so that they could actually see it. And it was in the land that God had promised to them all originally saying that this is the same God who has redeemed all of us. It would be a constant reminder to them that they worship the same God and are part of the same spiritual inheritance. And both have been redeemed and delivered by the same Yahweh. This is a beautiful expression of faith and connection to God's people. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering to yourself, couldn't you guys have like talked about this back in verses 1 through 9? I, I see a really good opportunity to say this so there wouldn't be all this confusion. Lo and behold, the commentators never deal with that, so I'm left to wonder that just to myself. But their commitment is made clear in verse 29. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. In some, the concern of the eastern tribes was that they not forget nor be forgotten as a part of God's people. It would be a memorial, a witness that testified to the united nature of God's redeemed community. And I think there's a wonderful application for us in this today, and it comes from Ephesians chapter 4, where we are reminded to be eager to maintain unity among God's people. In the context of Ephesians 4 is uh, the call to walk in unity, to walk in, in humility towards one another. And think about this, Christians today may not have a, a giant raging river that separates them from one another, but there are countless threats that do seek to divide us as God's people, am I right? Issues of preference, issues of doctrine that are not of first importance, relational conflict, all of these things seek to divide God's people and pit us against one another as if we're not on the same side. And Paul reminds us that there are not many faiths, there are not many lords, rather there is one body and we must seek to preserve it in the bond of peace with gentle and humble hearts. In fact, church, the greatest unifier of God's people in the New Testament, you know what it is? It's love. It's love for one another. If you don't believe me, you need to go to John 13 and you need to see Jesus' parting words to his disciples where he tells them, listen, when the world wants to know that I exist and they want to know that there is a God, you know what they're going to look to? They're not going to look primarily to the way that you love the outsiders, though that is important. They're not going to look to the ways that you proclaim my truth, though that is important. You want to know how they're going to know that there is a God and I exist? They're going to know that you are my disciples by the way that you what? Love one another. You see, Satan loves to use disunity because he understands how disunity makes Christianity look so unappealing to the watching world. And I can't blame him because it is, isn't it? When Christians fight and bicker and divide over the silliest of things, it leaves a bad taste in our mouths. And in the eyes of the watching world, there's nothing appealing about that. 
This act on the part of the eastern tribes was a bold step toward keeping the whole nation united. And so I want to ask you today, what bold steps might you need to take today or this week to help bridge the divides that exist? Maybe there's somebody in the church that you need to make amends with. You need to have reconciliation with. Again, we are all part of God's people here. Think about the theme of this church this past year of, of strengthening the body. I can't think of anything that is a stronger testimony to that than this. How is the body of Christ strengthened? Well, it's strengthened when its people work together in love to establish humility and gentleness and unity amongst one another. It's seen in how we lovingly pursue relational wholeness with each other but if we were to look through the story in the way that it finishes i think there's one more concern that we need to direct our attention to the final concern of god's people in this story is to remember truth god's people need to be concerned about remembering truth and the conclusion uh, that phineas and to the heads of the families of israel come to in verse 30 is that it was good in their eyes what the eastern tribes desired here and what they were pursuing was good and right. It was appropriate. It's a fairly, if I could be honest, it's a fairly anticlimactic ending to the story. Uh, tensions are put at ease, the crisis is averted, and everyone just goes back home like nothing ever happened. A good report is given to the mainland and all moves forward. And once the dust has settled, the eastern tribes take it upon themselves to name this altar. Because after all, names communicate something, right? It's the reason we take great pride in how we name our children. Some of us, how we name our pets. And if you're those people, you might even name your cars, right? They all communicate something. So what do they name this altar in verse 34? The people of Reuben the people of Gad called the altar witness. Not exactly the most flashy name, right? Witness. But it is an important one because witness speaks here in verse 34 to testifying to something that is true. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. In this case, it's not just that the Lord is God. He's Lord, our God. It symbolically showed the nation's unity which testified to the very God who had united them together by delivering them out of Egypt. And God's word bears witness to the truth, helping us remember of what is most essential to remaining faithful. And so I close with this exhortation coming from Psalm 103. And that's to never forget God's benefits. Never forget God's benefits that are true to us. We've seen throughout this series that we need to be a people who remember. That's why we have all these memorial stones that are established throughout the book of Joshua to cause us to remember that which is of first importance. And these stones point us back to the amazing character of our God. And Psalm 103 verse 2 reminds us that we should forget none of God's benefits. What are those benefits? Boy, we can spend forever talking about the benefits of God from Psalm 103. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies, he reveals, he shows mercy, grace, patience, love. He is just, faithful, compassionate, all-knowing. You can keep going on and on and on. Those are the benefits that we have been afforded as God's people in Christ Jesus. 
The truths of this song remind us that God has rescued you. He has redeemed you. He has adopted you into his forever family, and he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing that there could possibly be. How can remembering any of those things do anything but to spur us on to greater love and faithfulness to the God who has been so faithful to us? And so this emotionally charged story ends with a very simple and, dare I say, practical charge to remember our great God, to forget none of his amazing benefits to us as his people. So let's pray. And Father, we do thank you now. We do thank you that your faithfulness to us is something worth remembering. And it's something worth calling to attention as we think about what it is that you have done to redeem and to unite your people to one another. And so my hope and prayer for this church, Lord, for Newcastle Bible Church, is that you would help us spur us on in our faithfulness to you. Help us to run the race, but to do so together, knowing that we all play a part, a responsibility and accountability to one another, knowing that you have not redeemed us to live this life alone, but that you have redeemed us into a community that is called to support and uphold and, and care for one another. So help that to be true of us. Strengthen this uh, local church body as, as weak and as sinful as imperfect as it is and cause us to be a people who strive to be faithful to you in light of the amazing faithfulness that you have shown to us. For your name's sake and to your glory we pray. Amen.